Have you ever been hurt in a relationship? It is never our enemies that hurt us the most. We expect them to hurt us. It's those we've loved, those we've shared trust with, those we've done real life with. The song says it so well, only a friend can betray a friend. I'm sure each of you at some point knows what it has been to be hurt. And I think there's all kinds of reasons that you can be hurt. You can be the one that was hurt. You can be the one that actually did the hurting. In light of that, have you ever quit a relationship? There's good reasons to quit a relationship. Maybe the relationship was sinful. Maybe you hurt someone so badly or they hurt you that you, you walked away. Whatever the reason, the relationship is, is over. I just think about all that's required for a relationship to keep going over the long haul. Trust has to be built. Trust has to be renewed when trust has been broken. Relationship is built. The relationship has to be repaired and reconciled when it's been broken. Uh, There's not one of us, any of our cultures, that does not celebrate 50 years of marriage between two people. We do that because we instinctively, we naturally recognize what it would take for that kind of longevity of commitment in this world that those two people, through all the inevitable ups and downs and even hurt and sin in a relationship that long, did not quit. They kept going. And they would have kept going when quitting would have been much easier. Does God quit on his people? If you're trusting Jesus Christ, have you ever been tempted to believe God will quit on you? Maybe this past week, maybe in a season ago, at some point in your life, you quit on God. You quit. Now, at that point, What did you immediately think about God? He was fed up with you? I think we're tempted to think that because even when we know the truth of God's word, we we often find that hard to believe when it comes to our lives, our sin. Just a few weeks ago, we were in Genesis 34. If you remember that chapter, it was a chapter of Godlessness. God's name was not mentioned one time. God's man, Jacob, did not lead. He did not protect. He did not trust God. Surely, as we're reading the Bible, we would think this is the breaking point. This is when it's over. But this morning, we go to Genesis 35. And we find there that if we thought that, we would be wrong. When we open this chapter, we do wonder, where is this relationship going next? And this is what we see. God does not quit. God will not 
quit. And that's the the main point, the big idea I want you to see from this chapter this morning. God will not quit on his people or his purposes to save. God will not quit on his people or his purposes to save. This chapter is a transitional chapter in this book. In this chapter, Moses is wrapping up the last 11 chapters of Genesis where we have really focused on Jacob. And at the same time, he's preparing us for what's coming ahead. So I want to walk through this chapter, seeing it through, through two points. One, repentance and renewal. Repentance and renewal. And two, death and destiny. Death and destiny. Let's behold the God who will not quit on his people or his purposes to save. First, let's see repentance and renewal, verses 1 through 15. Verses 1 through 15. Look down at the scriptures. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakot. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob set a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured, a drink out, he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Honestly, as I read this, I asked myself, how does God do it? How does he do what? How does he not quit? I mean, when we were in Genesis 34, God was not salt. God was not worshipped. God was not mentioned. There was 
deep darkness. There was cruel, unjust wickedness and death. And what does God do to his covenant partner who has failed God miserably? He speaks. That's what drives this section. God's speech. And then Jacob responds to God. So after all of Jacob's flaws have been exposed, once again for us all to see, did God quit on his covenant partner in Genesis, after Genesis 34? No. No. This relationship is one based on grace. God entered into covenant with Jacob like he did his fathers, not based on works, but all of grace. And this relationship that was not begun by works or lack of merit will not end because of it. It's all bound up in God's grace. We should praise God that verse 1 does not say, and God quit. It says, and God said. God will not quit going after Jacob. So never miss these opportunities in the Scriptures when we see the grace-based, steadfast commitment of God to his people who fail him. Grace is counter to us. It's so different than what we're used to. It means that if God did not begin to love you or to love Jacob because of something in us, he's not going to quit loving us because of something in us. His love for you is bound up in him. God's love for Jacob, God's love for you, bound up in Christ, bound up in God. God has not changed since those days. And God says. But even in what God says, we're reminded here, aren't we, of what Jacob did not do. Remember, he had settled near Shechem when he had vowed to go to Bethel and to build a house, an altar. He gave his word to God. And now God is giving his word to Jacob to go. Now, geographically, Bethel was located higher. It was literally about a thousand feet up in elevation. So Jacob would literally go up. He was going to ascend to this city. And what's God's word to him? Go up. Make an altar and worship. That's verse 1. And God connects this to his own appearance to Jacob when he fled from Esau. So here at the end of this section of Scripture, we're going back to the beginning. The God who was with Jacob after he fled from Esau, remember, he fled because of his great deception, that was his great sin, is still with Jacob after he leaves Shechem, after his and his family's great sin there. Once again, God is not quitting on his people or his purposes. God speaks. Now, what is Jacob's response? It's fascinating. In Genesis 34, we saw his leadership was completely absent. Here in chapter 35, he leads. He leads his family toward repentance. Verse 2. Put away the foreign gods. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. So God had called Jacob to go up to Bethel 
to dwell and to worship. But what does Jacob do? He discerns rightly that his family is spiritually polluted. That repentance must precede worship. To approach God, they must repent. I want you to remember, this was the covenant family. They had God's promises. And they had idols. They might have picked them up in Shechem. They might have still had them from the many years that they had spent in Paddan Aram with, with Laban. Do you remember back in chapter 33, we saw just how impotent that idols are? Rachel stole the household, household gods of Laban. And Laban tried to go after them, and he couldn't find them. Wherever they came from, this family, with all their privileges, they still had idols. And Jacob rightly called them to repent. What is repentance? What is repentance? Bruce Waltke wonderfully defines it as renouncing whatever hinders or tarnishes your worship of God. Whatever that is, renouncing it. Now, if I were to say to you, renounce whatever hinders or tarnishes your worship of God, does that sound like a gracious call or a hard call? Whatever it is that's hindering your worship of God is the hard taskmaster, not God. And so whenever you hear this call to renounce, that's not a call to kill your joy. It's to renounce what is actually killing your joy. Repentance toward God is not a call to death. It's a call to life. What idols are hindering? Tarnishing your worship of God. If you've ever tried to lose weight, you know what it is. You know what it is when you begin. And those cravings for food that won't go away. I, I've quit diets, some of these crazy diets, when that's happened. You, you crave something because you really do believe you cannot live without it. So for some of you, it's the chocolates. For me, it's the carbs. Honestly, it's the chips or the crisp, depending on where you're from. But you know what does happen? I've heard the cravings actually start to subside. They go away. You don't hunger for that food that you hungered for. That's actually what it's like when you put away your idols. Spiritually, those cravings that mark your life spiritually, relationships, comfort, power, pleasure, self, they are killing you. Put them away. Renounce them. Repentance is the path to life. This family... They were even to change their clothes. An external act that would have signified meaningfully an internal change. They are preparing for worship, to meet God. It makes us anticipate when God would do this with all of his people, when they would meet him 
at the mountain in the desert. Just look at this language in Exodus 19. I'll read it for you. Exodus 19.10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. It's not the way that the world thinks of it. But to approach the living God is not a light matter. Repentance is necessary. Consecration, separation from sin. What idol do you need to put away in your life? Now, what will you do to actually do it? That's something worth thinking about and even praying and talking to someone about this week. Jacob is leading his family to Bethel to worship God, who's been with him, who's answered him. Do you realize Jacob knows afresh that God has not quit on him? Even when he knows deeply, he quit on God. I don't think that there's moments in the Christian life that are so joyful as when you realize you have failed your Lord. You quit. And then to know the grace of repentance and renewal with God. Especially when you realize God did not let go when you expected that he would. What does Jacob's family do? Verse 4. They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. They put them away. They repented. These rings in their ears were either rings that they wore. It might have actually been rings on the idols. But the bigger point is they repented. I imagine it wasn't easy. With idols, there is a reason, like the foods that we crave that we shouldn't, we think we cannot live without them. Idols are powerful. But putting them away is so freeing. Idols are empty. Whatever it is you need to renounce, on the other side of it, you will see it was empty. Isn't that what it's like when we grow older? I don't mean to spoil this for you kids, but you look at those cheap toys or the attractions that so captured your attention when you were younger, and you just see them as cheap. That's what it's like when our spiritual sight grows and and deepens as our spiritual taste change. Idols call you away from what will fill you up, and they call you to what is empty. God is always calling you away from what is empty to his own fullness to life. Teens, this word idols is something surely you struggle with. What is it for you? Is it your image? Is it your popularity? Is it an achievement? What is it that you think is better than the triune God of of scriptures? I want to challenge you as a teenager, as a young person, to form habits in these years of worship to God. 
Those can serve you or they can hinder you longer than you might expect. Take seriously this call to put away foreign gods. Don't think I'm going to do that when I'm older. One of the most revolutionary things you can do at this point in your life is to take serious steps to renounce idols and to savor and rest in Christ. Talk to your parents about that. Talk to me. Talk to someone you trust in this body about putting away idols in your life. What happened to the idols when they put them away? Look back at verse 4. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree near Shechem. It was Shechem. Jacob was that he was not supposed to be that he and his family did what they never should have done. And now these idols, they were acquired somewhere along the way. Jacob puts them under the ground. You know, that is the place where something that is truly dead belongs. Under the ground. Who in their right mind would worship what can be buried? Hidden forever under the ground. Remember when Rachel stole her father's idols? We saw so clearly that if your idol, what you worship, can be stolen, you should not worship it. It's not worthy of your worship. I don't want you to waste your life worshiping what can be put under the ground. This little burial scene is a picture in miniature of all the gods of this world, where they're headed. And the tragedy is that much of this world will spend its entire existence worshiping what will be buried. Is that you? Allow yourself to be honest with yourself about the idols. Capture your heart. How they're promising you life. But they're killing you. Repentance was necessary before they left. And so it's actually not until verse 5 that they actually go. What do we learn there? Terror from God fell upon the cities. They did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, I want you to think back or even look back to chapter 34, verse 30. What did Jacob fear after that terrible episode? He said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. He feared for his life. Now, I think what we're seeing here is how fearful this journey to Bethel would have been. Jacob feared, just as God's people in the future will be tempted to fear what surrounds them, but it's the wrong things. They should be fearing the God they cannot see, not the enemies that they can. We keep seeing this in Genesis. Nothing, nothing, nothing will stop God from fulfilling his purposes. So this call for Jacob to take the family to Bethel was a call that required faith, trust that God would be good to his word and be with Jacob, that God would protect him just as God would protect his people centuries later when they were marching to the land. God does this first here. Jacob journeys by faith. He's protected by God. So what a contrast between these foreign gods buried under some tree near Shechem and Jacob's God, who's alive 
and brings terror to the powerful people of the land. God will not quit. And though he's failed, praise God, Jacob has not quit either. By grace, he's kept going. He's come full circle. He's back to Bethel in verse six. He's in Canaan, but he's consecrated to God. They built the altar. They renamed the place El Bethel, the God of the house of God. So the first time it was the place that he marked. This time it's the God of the place that he marks and worships. He's the God who met him when he fled his brother. Two times we hear that, verse 2 and verse 7. It's been a long journey. It's been over 20 years since he's been at this place. God's been with Jacob. Can you imagine how overwhelmed he was by the faithfulness of Yahweh when he came back to Bethel? I mean, how many times have you reflected on God's faithfulness to you when you've come back here? Jacob, back at Bethel. What does he do when he's there? He worships. What were God's people centuries later to learn to do when they come into the land that God had protected them? as they were protected from their enemies, they were to worship. God of Jacob is alive and he is powerful, able to protect his people and he can bring his people into the land. And once he does, we, his people, are meant to worship him. Strangely, verse eight, we learn that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died and she was buried under an oak at Bethel. Why are we told this? Well, the very last words from Rebecca are back in Genesis 27. She told Jacob she would send for him. Now, interestingly, in Genesis, Rebecca's burial is not mentioned. And that very well be, may be because of her role in, in deceiving, uh, taking part in the deception of Isaac. But her nurse's name is. I think it's through her nurse that Rebecca kept her word to Jacob. Now, remember earlier, the idols were buried and no one wept. But with Deborah's burial, they all wept. That's what Alan Bakoth means, oak of weeping. God has spoken. Jacob and his family have repented and obeyed. And then verse 9, God speaks again. Notice this time even more, God appears and speaks this is like Abraham. He passed the test in going up the mountain. Jacob now has passed this test. He's trusted God in this dangerous journey to Bethel, and God protected him from death. So just as God appeared to Abraham after his obedience and renewed his covenant promises to him, that's what God is doing to Jacob, renewing, reaffirming the promises. Verse 10, he reaffirms, he renews his name, not Jacob, Israel. Verse 11, he gives him the Abrahamic promise. It's, it's structured in the exact same way as, as Genesis 17. And it's done so to make it clear to God's people, Jacob carries these promises. Verse 11, God identifies himself as God Almighty. It's the same way he revealed himself to Abraham. He renews the, the commission given to humanity in Genesis 1, 28, to be fruitful and multiply. He's giving that to the patriarchs. And just as God promised Abraham that nations and kings would come from him, so also he makes this promise to Jacob. 
royalty will come from this family. Verse 12, he gives his promise to give the land. Now, what's interesting here is at this point, this family that's been promised land still owns barely anything. All these decades, they've been living by faith in the promises of God. Often God's promises appear to be delayed from our vantage point. But from the scriptures, we're to learn that his his plans and his promises are unfolding right according to his purposes, and we are to be content to wait. I think what is different here, and possibly an escalation of God's promises, is this language of a company of nations. God promised Abraham he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And maybe at that point people thought, or maybe his own people thought, you know, he had Isaac and and Ishmael, that was two nations that would come from him. This seems more expansive. Seems God is giving more of a hint. He is going to do something greater than they can fathom. Nations will come into this family. And if it was an angel that appeared to Jacob earlier in Genesis, this time it's God himself in verse 13. God hasn't quit. He's not quitting on his promises. He's not quitting on his purposes. He's not quitting on his person, Jacob. Jacob, who lacked faith in God, through repentance, through faith, has found renewal with God. And so, rightly, in response to this remarkable appearance and reaffirmation of God's promises, Jacob responds, verse 14, in worship. He was not commanded to repent. He was commanded to worship. He's been in the presence of God. Again, he sets up a pillar to mark this moment. He pours a drink offering, oil on it. What is he doing? He's taking time and effort to worship God. All of us will give time and effort to ascribe worth to whatever or whoever we think is worthy of it. You know this. If you're a fan of a team in sports or hobby or person, you will demonstrate how you think that object, that person is worthy of affection. You will sacrifice for it. Now, obviously within right boundaries, that's not bad at all. But God gives gifts. God alone is to be worshipped. That's what Jacob does. Worship belongs to God. So Jacob has repented. They're renewed in their relationship with God. God has renewed the covenant promises to him because God does not quit. He gives us the grace that we might not quit either. Repentance and renewal. This gives way to death and destiny. That's our second point. Death and destiny. Verse 16 through 29. Look down in verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died 
And she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We've come to the end. I want you to think back over Jacob's life, his strife with Esau. He deceived his father. He fled from his house alone for his life. Many years of servitude and deceit with Laban. Remember the terrible conflict between Rachel and Leah, the jealousy. He struggled with the angel of God, the climactic reconciliation with Esau, his terrible failure at Shechem. This is a man who knew what it was to sin very greatly in his life, but also in the midst of it all, to go on with God. He's not done. This family keeps journeying by faith southward toward Bethel or leaving Bethel. And this first death we must walk through is Rachel's. We met Rachel at the end of chapter 29. She was Jacob's first love. Jacob served Laban for seven years for her, and they felt to him as if they were but a day. He loved her. We remember she and Leah were both married to Jacob. What did she want? She wanted children. We read in Genesis 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied. Her sister, she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. She could not have fathomed that what she wanted more than life itself would actually bring about her own death. As she's dying, the, the midwife is encouraging her. Verse 17, you're, you're having a son. She names the son Benoni before she dies. It means something like son of sorrow. What comfort she must have known in her death. Her final prayer, Genesis 30, may the Lord add to me another son. In her death, she knew the answers of her covenant Lord to her prayers. Death is bringing destiny. One generation gives way to another. Rachel called him Ben-Onai, Jacob called him Benjamin, son of the right. The right hand being the the hand that was favored or, or stronger. Strangely, for Jacob in the years to come, Benjamin for him will become Ben-Onai. He's going to know great sorrow over this son after having lost Joseph. He will fear he's lost Benjamin too. 
Rachel is dead and buried. Israel's favored wife, gone, but he must journey on beyond the Tower of Eder. And yet he continues to know grief and trial. Reuben, verse 22, lays with Bilhah, his father's concubine. This is a brief report. It's terribly wicked. Based on the timing here, what Reuben did was based on more than lust. Upon Rachel's death, Bilhah could have become Jacob's favorite wife. So what he did was meant to defile her, that she would not ascend to that status. Even more than that, there's something more sinister going on. Uh, Remember when Abner, he laid with Saul's concubine? He did that to claim a right to his throne. That's probably what Reuben was doing, seeking to claim a stake in authority in the family. He wanted to protect his mother Leah, and he wanted to supplant his father. Here is a family who has already known defilement through sexual sin. Now one of their members is perpetrating it. Jacob continues to live a life of trial. Very briefly, we learn, verse 22, Israel heard of it. He heard of it. What did he do? The narrator doesn't tell us anything he says. We don't know anything. We do know from the rest of Genesis that Reuben's destiny is set. Along with Simeon and Levi who carried out the massacre at Shechem, Reuben will be passed over as the firstborn. At the very end of Genesis 49, when Jacob does speak, he declares to Reuben this, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. His wrong desires lead to his doomed destiny. As we're leaving Jacob, I want you to think back to the place that misplaced desires have had in the last few chapters and what they've led to. What is shaping your desires? God means for your desires that he has given you to be satisfied, to desire him, to be satisfied in him and his glory. Jeremiah Burroughs, an English preacher in the 17th century, said this, if God has glory, I have glory. God's glory is my glory, therefore God's will should be my will. If God has riches, I have riches. If God is magnified, I will be magnified. If God is satisfied, I am satisfied. Meaning, God's glory will never leave us empty. We share in God's glory through the Son. And we desire His glory. Every victory that is the Lord is a victory we share. That's why we don't envy each other. That's why we don't have to seek more prominent places or positions. That's why we don't have to chase vainglory in this world. When we desire God's glory and He gets glory, no matter the source, we share in that. It's like when our team wins, their victory is our victory. Our union with Christ means that when our God wins, we win. This frees us from desiring what will destroy us. 
God is glory satisfied. God is weighty enough for your deepest desires. Reuben desired what would destroy him. And he forfeited the destiny that was his as the firstborn. And Israel heard of it. Ultimately, we are told again of the names of the 12 sons, becoming 12 tribes. They're headed for conflict. But we see God's faithfulness in this. Jacob left home as a single man, and he returns with the beginning of a nation. God has not quit. These sons have committed horrific sin. God will not quit. God is so committed to his purposes to save, he will work even through the sin that they will commit to accomplish an astonishing salvation. Here is God multiplying this family. And so Jacob's life comes full circle in verse 27. We've heard so little about Isaac since he left home, but God has kept Jacob through all these years in Jacob's absence, Rebekah's death, Isaac has lived. He's 180 years old. His life is full of days. And he was able to see his sons who knew rivalry reconcile, reunited, returned to bury their father together. In this whole account, we've seen sin again and again. It's never been hidden from us. But that sin is only the backdrop for the steadfast faithfulness and grace of God. In this account, from the idols to Deborah to Rachel to Isaac, we have walked through four burials, four times. Whether it's objects or people, they've all gone under the ground. But ultimately, unless God quits... That's the destiny of every man, to go under the ground. Life above the ground leads to life below the ground. Here in this account of death and burial, God is working to bring about life. From this family would come royalty, would come the king. God's own son who reigns above the sun would come into this world and live below the sun. Take on flesh to live and to die for sinners like Jacob, like Reuben, like Rachel and Isaac, like you and like me. God's own son would come to obey for sinners who have failed to obey. And what's more, God's own son, Jesus, wouldn't just obey, he would die. The God who would not quit on Jacob in Jesus would not quit in obedience until death. On the cross, where he would substitute his own life for every sinner who would ever believe on him. By his death, Jesus reversed the destiny of everyone who would ever repent of sin and trust in him. Tasting death, Jesus would go under the ground. But he is not like the idols buried under the ground at the terebinth tree. He would not be hidden away. He was raised publicly in power for the world to see That is good news for the world. That is good news for you. Because of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, death does not have to be any of our destiny. By faith in Christ, 
believing on Christ, life everlasting can be ours. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you believed on him? Or are you trusting in what will only amount to death? Life under the ground. Brothers and sisters, how good is our God? Our God does not quit on his people or on his purposes. Jesus obeyed and he kept obeying until he went all the way to the cross. What idol have you worshipped or are you worshipping that would go that far for you? We've been saved from idols. Saved from God's wrath to worship God, the God who will not quit on any of his people, on any of his purposes. This chapter is filled with death. But it is a chapter that looks forward to the destiny of this family. And it highlights the God who perseveres. If Jacob here got a taste of his God who would not quit on his people or his purposes, how much more us? We live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. Our God is so committed to his purposes to save that the son died to accomplish them. On the whole, Jacob's story is now coming to an end. But God's story is not. There are more flawed partners God will enter into relationship with until his perfect son comes into the world. But for now, death is destiny. Soon, it will not be. As we leave Jacob, put away your idols. Renounce them. Through repentance and faith in the resurrected Son, remember we will inherit a renewed world. Don't quit until that day. Because very soon, for all eternity, in the presence of God, we will worship.